Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people that know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the following message. Thank you so much. My, um, one of my favorite times to look forward to on Sundays is watching Brother Logan bring this over here, putting it in the middle, because it's always good to see your preacher take a stand. It's always a good thing. I, I apologize. <clears throat> so in last week's episode, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Amen, indeed. And today we're going to pick up at that moment, a little bit later in the day, which is not something that we often do. We talk about, on many occasions, the resurrection, but how did the rest of that day go for the disciples? It was an amazing day. And part of this is prompted on some words that a professor of mine many years ago shared uh, with us at a class in seminary, Dr. Dan Crawford, uh, who is a, um, a professor of evangelism, is still at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, I believe either taught or was good friends or both uh, with Brother Andy Davis. Uh, Brother Andy and I have talked about Dr. Crawford, and he wrote a book, and then he fiendishly assigned it for one of his own classes, and the name of the book is called Church Growth Words from the Risen Lord. Church Growth Words from the Risen Lord. And he said he got the idea from a Billy Graham sermon where Billy Graham was preaching about how many churches celebrate the last seven uh, words or phrases of Jesus' life and meditate on those as a lead up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Dr. Graham said he believed that the church needed to, be, needed to pay more attention to the words shared by Christ after the resurrection. And I got to thinking about it. We talk a lot about someone's last words. Uh, many times those are imbued with particular meaning as they are reaching the end of their life. But we don't talk as much about the uh, words of Christ after his resurrection and so it's to those words that we now turn. Our text for this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. John 20, 19 through 21. And I'll ask if you're able uh, to stand in honor of reading these words. John 20, 19 through 21. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut up where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the fact that your work in our lives and on this earth did not end with your resurrection, but it guides us and propels us 
even to this day. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So all creation from the beginning to the end hinges upon the resurrection of Christ. As Paul said, if Christ didn't come back from the dead, then we Christians above all people should be pitied. You heard it in the hymns we sang together, this conquering over death. And as we travel through this life and have more and more friends and family who pass on to the other side through death, it's something we return to again and again. What I wanted to do this morning was for us to hear clearly the gospel message of Christ. And in particular, to look at the role of the church in that message and what that is today. The gospel is a story. The gospel is the story of how God, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, sought to heal and redeem this creation. The gospel story is the good news story that God himself, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, means to restore and heal all of his created order. This world that God created was good. This world that God created was broken slash is broken. And God's plan his unfolding plan is to heal this world and to bring it back into a right relationship with him. And so as we look at that, if that is the mission of God on this earth, then how has that looked throughout Scripture? I want us to take a look at how it looked in the Old Testament, how it looked in the New Testament, and then how has it looked since the days of the New Testament, because obviously that's the day in which we live today. So first then, God's mission in the Old Testament, God created this world good. From the very beginning, as you read the first and second chapters of Genesis, there is this refrain, this repetition, that what God created, God created good. The world, as planned, as intended, was created good. But you may have noticed something. The world is not good. You can read the newspaper and see that. You can drive down any highway and experience it firsthand. <clears throat> and then if I can get a little personal, you can also look in the mirror and realize that things are not all good. Sin entered this world through the choice of humans, the very first humans, Adam and Eve, made the conscious decision to disobey what God had set up, his expectations, and that sin has affected and infected all of us since then. It affects the world we live in, and it affects the choices that we make. And the fundamental result of this that we see playing out in Scripture is that sin separates people from God. Sin, by its nature, drives wedges between relationships. 
When I sin against others, my relationship with them is affected. And when I sin against God, my relationship with him is affected as well. And we see that from the very beginning. In Genesis, we read Genesis 3, we read about the the sin of Adam and Eve, and that sin remains with us to this day. The sin remains with us in terms of uh, something that we are born with and something we choose to do. I have an analogy that I'm going to share with you, and it's a medical analogy. And Karen, my wife, who's a nurse, always grimaces a little bit when I share. So, so come up afterwards if you need to clean this up uh, to me. But it's, it struck me in this way. So sin both affects us, that is, we're born into a culture, into a world that, that is covered in sin, and it is a part of our lives from birth. It reminded me a little bit about, and we've had this experience in our family, of diabetes, where there's two kinds of diabetes. There's the kind of diabetes, type 1, and again, I'm like 90% sure of this, type 1, which is genetic. So we have a child who is diabetic, and she had expressed some concerns when she was first diagnosed, diagnosed about what she had done, and the doctor, and I vividly recall this, in our first meeting with him, he pointed at me and Karen and said, it's their fault. It's not your fault. This is something you were born with. It tends to come suddenly, and it's genetic, and there's really not much you can do about it. The second kind is, uh, takes a little longer in most cases to develop. It's the result of lifestyle choices that accompany it, and is uh, treatable in in some different ways. But my essential point is this. It is possible to both be born with diabetes and also to acquire it later through choice. And I think there's a very rough, admittedly rough, analogy there with sin, where it's something we are, in fact, born with and born into and also something that we choose. So what is God's response to this? And I think this is so important because sin hits the story early. You don't even get through the third chapter of Genesis and sin enters the scene. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, after Adam and Eve commit this sin, we read in verse 8 of God's response. If you could hit pause on the story right after their sin, as a reader, you're thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? God had this plan. God gave them this perfect world in which to live, and immediately they chose to reject that plan. What is going to happen? And so all creation waited for the response of God to that sin. And what was God's response? In verse 8 of chapter 3 of Genesis, God decides to take a walk in the garden. We hadn't seen him do this before, but he chose to do so now. We, here's what we read in verse 8 of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. He finds them, and then we read in verse 21 toward the end of the chapter, For Adam and for his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them and addressed the needs that they had. 
And so the very first time we encounter God's interaction with humans after creation, it is spent in pursuit of his son and daughter. Spent in pursuit of those who had, by their choice, rejected what God had given them and separated themselves from them. The Old Testament then is like, like beautiful verses to a hymn in slightly different ways. Over and over this same story is told, whether it's through the covenants that God made with Abraham, whether it is deep love and salvation of Noah and his family, whether it is drawing his people out of bondage in Egypt, whether it's abiding in the middle of the camp as his people wandered through the Sinai desert. Throughout this time, God dwelt among his people and desired a relationship with them. In the prophet Isaiah, the king Uzziah calls Isaiah to come and talk to him. And in their conversation, Isaiah gives the following promise in chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God dwelling among us. So again, this idea that God is not remote and separate and apart, but God dwells with his people, God dwells among his people for the purpose of restoring this relationship back to them. As we turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see that God continues this pursuit of his people who have gone astray. God's mission in the New Testament doesn't change from his mission in the Old Testament, which is to pursue his people and draw them back to him. The setting had changed. God's people now lived under domination by the Roman Empire. They now lived in a world where they no longer had much say in how they got to uh, control themselves and govern themselves. And it was into that world that Jesus Christ came. This time it was not God himself walking in the cool of the garden, but it was God sending his son, Jesus Christ. And I think the most famous verses in scripture, particularly for believers in Christ, are found in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where the entire gospel is summed up. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world through his son can be saved. So God this time sent his one and only son to this planet. These verses are so important because they show us some critical things to understanding the gospel message. God created this world sin into this world and separated us from God. And then in John 3, 16, we read that the motivating factor for God desiring a relationship with us is his love. love the love of God is the catalyst that puts into action the gospel story. 
Because God loved this world so much that he sent his son. God's love comes first. And God loves us before we love him. Again, it's like the birth of a child with a parent before the child even fully understands. Indeed, I would say in most cases that I'm aware of, the love of the child begins even before the child is born. That love of parent for child starts and grows from there. The love of God came first. This is important because it means we don't have to earn God's love. God offers his love first, and it is our opportunity to respond to that. God desired that people not perish. What fuels God's love is his desire and and fuels the gospel story is his desire for folks not to perish and for folks to instead come into a relationship with him. It also emphasizes that this world is not right. I shared earlier the text from Genesis. I mentioned you can look around. Culture tells us this way, tells us this fact as well, that this world is not right. A movie I enjoyed very much many years ago when it came out, which was in a previous century now, 1991, this film called Grand Canyon starred Kevin Kline and Danny Glover. And there's a scene in the film where Kevin Kline is coming back from a Lakers game with his family, and they decide to cut through uh, an unsafe part of Los Angeles, and their car breaks down, and guess what? Cell phones hadn't been invented yet. It would have been a very different movie, I think, if they had just had a cell phone. Uh, But Kevin Klein decides to go to a payphone and call a tow truck driver to come get his vehicle, which he does. But while he's on the phone, a car full of gang members drives by slowly, looking at him, looking at his car, and they pull up. He makes his way back to his car. They pull up behind the car, and they start threatening him. And right at the point where things are about to go badly for Kevin Klein and his family, I don't remember his character's name. We'll say it was Kevin Klein. At that point, Danny Glover pulls up in his tow truck and he gets out and he just starts hooking up the car while these gang members with guns are there. And finally, the leader of the gang says to Danny Glover's character, You need to ask our permission before you take away this car. And there's silence, and Glover thinks about what he has just been told. And here's what Glover says. He says, man, to this young kid with a gun, man, this world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that yet. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. Even this world in which we live knows that this world is broken and in need of restoration, of healing, of renewal, And we know, again, in our uh, most uh, honest moments to ourselves, we know that we need renewal. 
We need help. G.K. Chesterton, the great British Christian of the 19th century, wrote a letter to the editor uh, where they were taking in letters about what's the biggest problem with the world. He said, the answer to the question, what is wrong with this world, is I am wrong with this world, he said, indicating his own uh, brokenness and sinfulness and contributing to this wrong that's there and understanding that there are consequences to these broken decisions that you and I make throughout our lives. There are consequences to these decisions. Now, so often the model for God is that God set up all these rules because God loves rules and he loves it when people break those rules and he loves popping people on the head when they break those rules. God's expectation for us is generated by that love for us that he has, which means the desires that he has, the boundaries that he sets are for our own protection and health. It would be as though the uh, um, salesman at a uh, car lot hands the keys to someone and says, it's their first car, so he says, okay, when you take this car, there's a couple of things you need to do. You need to be sure you have plenty of gas at all times. I know it's expensive, but you gotta have it. You need to be sure to change your oil regularly, and whatever you do, don't drive 90 miles an hour on I-35 at least more than once because you're going to lose your license, you won't be able to drive it anymore. And the person receiving the keys to their first car snatches them out of his hand and says, this is my car, I can do anything I want to with it. You're not the boss of me. So how long is that going to last? Not that I've had experience with this in my own family, but if you don't change your oil regularly, it will destroy the engine. If you drive 90 miles an hour or more on I-35, you're going to get a ticket, a large one. <clears throat> it, it reminds me this idea of, our, of our, uh, the desire, the human desire to express freedom in all directions without restraint or consequence. A, uh, a good friend uh, that I have, her father is a pastor, uh, retired now for many years, was a chaplain in New Orleans while he was at seminary. And he tells the story of he uh, was asked to go in and speak to a young man who had committed several crimes, been caught by the police, uh, but was such a flight risk, uh, they handcuffed him to the bed. And so he walked in, this young man laying on the bed, handcuffed in place, and he shares the gospel story with him. And the gentleman responds, you know, I need my freedom. I can't commit to what God wants. I've got to have my freedom. And Robert looked at him and said, you're literally handcuffed to a bed. You're about to go to prison. How is that freedom working out for you? Understanding that this sin that we engage in injures our relationship with others and injures our relationship with God. So God's mission doesn't change. Where does that leave us today? God's work in the Old Testament, God's work in the New Testament, now today, what is God's mission today? And it's primarily expressed in this time 
where God's mission toward ultimate healing of this world and of our lives has not yet occurred. And so we're in this in-between stage, and the role of the church is critical. Some folks think of it in terms of God being very active and, and the, the main focus for the Old Testament, the work of his son, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, and then in the age of the church, this age that we're in today, the Holy Spirit guiding us in all that we do. In many ways, it is expressed well in the book of Romans chapter 8, where Paul captures the now and the not yet feeling. He says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. I think William Faulkner put it best. He said, the biggest problem at this world is that it's not finished yet. The biggest problem with this world is that it is not finished yet. I um, pulled together some dates for the history of the church. So these, these things are not found in the Bible. These are coming after uh, the, the close of the New Testament uh, period. I don't know if we have those on uh, the screen. The first of these, uh, the period of the church, from around 30 to 100, the apostolic church. So this is the period in time where the church was growing and moving and the apostles were still alive during this time. By the way, these dates, uh, you'll have some people argue about when one period ended or maybe the name for a different period. But the ones I'm sharing with you are the correct ones. So you should go with these. Uh, so you have the apostolic church. The second uh, general time of the church from 100 to 313, which is the persecuted church. So this was the days uh, in times where the Roman leaders in particular uh, were trying to stamp out this new religion, and it ended in 313 when Christians were told, finally, okay, you can live without persecution. And then moved from 313 to 476, the imperial church. So this is the time when the emperor himself was a Christian, and the church and the empire moved together. And it lasted until 476, which was the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. And then from 476 to 1517, we had the medieval church. So during this period of time, uh, popes and kings were battling it out. Uh, a lot of Christian theology developed during this important time as well. And then 1517 through 1648, one of my own personal favorite periods in the history of the church was the Reforming Church. So this is Martin Luther in 1517 beginning this and then many others carrying on uh, after that until 1648 when uh, uh, there was greater freedom provided for the first time. Then 1648 to 1962, the modern church. So this is the, um, uh, a big age of missions. The church begins to spread around the world and establish itself as an institution. And lastly, the institutional church, 1962 to the present. This is the church that warms my heart because this is the church in which I was born as a believer and follower of Christ. If you smell, if you smell deeply of the institutional church, I'm convinced you smell banana pudding, <laughs> chicken spaghetti casseroles, if I say things like Wednesday night supper, sunbeams, 
Training union? Soul winning? The four spiritual laws? The Roman road? Five beaded bracelets? The Sunday school envelope? Oh, speaks to my heart. This is a day and time when church programming grew and grew and grew. Imagine how music has changed throughout all of these different time periods. When Jesus and the disciples sang hymns together, and they did, they likely sang psalms from the Old Testament. But later on, we see Paul writes the lyrics to some early Christian hymns in some of his letters. Later, the priests and the priests alone sang. Then groups of priests would sing together, the first choirs. Later, during the reforming age, the congregation begins joining and singing. And music grew and got better until it reached the pinnacle of perfection. And that year was 1975. And I hold before you the Baptist hymnal of 1975. And let me tell you, it wasn't easy to find this. I was looking around the house for one, and I couldn't find it. And so when I saw Brother Logan here this morning, he said, he said, John, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, yes, I need a 1975 Broadman hymnal. And he blinked twice and said, okay. And then uh, ultimately found in a back corner of <laughs> Brother Gary's office this hymnal. Why do I love this hymnal? Well, let me count the ways. Um, the very first hymn... Hymn number one, does anyone remember? Holy, holy, holy. I hear, I, 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 I feel you, I do. <laughs> Hymn 37, a mighty, mighty fortress is our God. 287, pass it on. It only takes a spark, apparently, to get a fire going. Heaven came down, 425. And, uh, and it, it, they were not all perfect hymns. Uh, I'll never forget hymn uh, number 20, God of Earth and Outer Space, <laughs> where we were really feeling the, the, the new age of discovery. And uh, whenever we had a fifth Sunday sing in the church in which I grew up, we got to call out hymns, and the youth would always call out hymn number 20 <laughs> just to make the music minister uncomfortable <laughs> so we could sing that together. So, let me ask it this way. So, 1975, if you were not, not a um, member of, the, of a Southern Baptist church culture, we'll say, in the mid-1970s, if you were not, so if, you, if you're, you know, younger than 40, probably not, uh, if you weren't Baptist at that time, uh, probably not, if you were not a member of 1970s Southern Baptist culture, raise your hand. All right, lots of hands. Uh, so let's do the other. If you were a member of a Southern Baptist church in the 1970s, raise your hand. All right, thank you very much. So there is this um, hymnal that speaks to many in the church that most in the church have zero connection with. And my kids don't have a connection to this. And should the, the Lord in his wisdom and grace grant me grandkids one day, they're going to have even less connection with this. So it's true in music. It's true in what we do. Each of these church times 
were really important and God worked through them in significant ways and, and those ways would not meet the needs of the world today. And so God brings about changes in the life of his church. So what does God command of us? The numbers are looking challenging. Last year, for the first time since Gallup has been tracking, the majority of people in the United States don't go to church or uh, synagogue. 47% of people in the United States, which is the lowest in the eight decades they've been tracking it, no longer go them. So if they are not coming here, then what do we need to do? Matthew 28, 18 and following, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So what is his command? It's to go, to go and make disciples. The trajectory of the church is to be on God's mission with him. So we return then to the very first verses we read from John 20. We're back to the day that Jesus came out of the tomb. He shows up with his disciples. They are in a room that is locked. And is the room locked from the inside or from the outside? Locked from the inside. And Christ's command to them is this. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This world is being made and remade in a beautiful way. And God desires great things from it. It reminds me, I was driving on my favorite Bible verse recently. I'll say that again. I was driving on my favorite Bible verse. You know what I mean. Loop 121. So that, maybe that's just mine. And it's a mess, right? There was a road that, you know, looked perfectly navigable that we've decided to tear up. And it's really hard but it's being remade because the purpose of that road is not going to meet the needs of the thousands and thousands of people that are moving to our community. What we see throughout God's work on this planet is he continues to pursue his people. And that pursuit never changes. The message of the gospel never changes, but the method does change. We see that from the Old Testament all the way to Revelation. And where is this going? What is the end point? The end point is when the entire world is remade. The entire, all of creation is remade into a new heaven and a new earth and a new Belton as a part of that. This was put beautifully on Good Friday. There was an article an opinion piece in the New York Times newspaper by Esau Macaulay, who's a New Testament professor at Wheaton College, a fantastic school with a really good football team, by the way. They finished top 10 in Division Three. I forget who finished first, but I know they finished top 10. <laughs> Listen to Macaulay. He said the following, 
on Good Friday, it is common even in Christian circles to think of the afterlife as disembodied bliss in a paradise filled with, a naked, with naked babies tickling the strings of harps as our souls bounce around from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never taught a disembodied form in heaven. Our beliefs are far more radical. We believe that one day the entire created world will be transformed to become what God always intended it to be, free of pain, free of death, free of sorrow. It will be an earth that still contains some of the things of this life. Christians believe that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead to live in this transformed earth. Like the earth itself, these bodies, our bodies, will be transfigured and perfected, but will still somehow be our bodies. So creation ends with this new creation that God has planned and deeply desires for every person that hears this gospel story and what that can mean. I want to close with this. Several years ago, I was uh, taking the kids out to eat to Johnny's, no, Mr. Gaddy's Pizza. You familiar with Mr. Gaddy's Pizza? They have a buffet. And there's two kinds of buffets, right? There's all you can eat and there's all you can stand. <clears throat> Those two, all you can eat, all you can stand. And we were eating uh, there, uh, didn't have a son at this time, the girls were little. And for some reason, I decided to tell them a story. And the story I told them went as follows. Once upon a time, there was a handsome prince who lived in the land of Harrison. And without him knowing, at the same time, there was a beautiful, beautiful princess who lived in the land of Rains. And they both traveled a distant way to the far-off country of McLennan. And there, even though they had not met one another, some friends thought that the handsome prince and the beautiful princess should meet and get together. And even though they had never met one another before, that night when they went out to eat, they both fell in love. But there was a storm cloud gathering. There was a war coming, and the handsome prince was going to have to leave for the war in seven weeks. In seven weeks from when they met, he was going to have to leave. And who knows how long he would be gone, even if he should come back. And so they began to talk to their friends, and they said, maybe, maybe I've met this handsome prince or handsome princess because we should get married. And their friends said, don't do that. You've, I mean, sure, he's a handsome prince, but you've just met. Sure, she's a beautiful princess, but you've just met. How could you consider something like that? And you know what they decided to do? Those rascals? They decided to get married six weeks after they met. And now they've been married for over 50 years. And that handsome prince and that beautiful princess had three boys. And the oldest boy had two daughters. And those two daughters are sitting here right now eating pizza at Mr. Gaddy's. And to watch the shock on their face as this story that I had been telling 
They suddenly began to understand that they are a part of that story. Indeed, from their perspective, they're the main characters in that story. The point at which they realized that they understood better who they were. And that's why the gospel is so important. It's not a far and distant story that's told out here about an incredible and loving God who desires to pursue us, but it's a story that catches all of us up in it and confronts us all with a decision. Do I want to become a part of God's story? Do I want to understand the sin that is in my life can only be overcome and forgiven by God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the decision that confronts all of us, no matter where we are in life. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. And I'm going to ask for us to take a moment of quiet while the piano plays, where you pray to God about what he is calling you to do and how God is calling you to be a part of that gospel story. And in a few minutes, I will close us in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning with a desperate desire to join you in your mission to redeem and heal this broken world. I thank you for this body of believers and for your calling upon us as your people. I pray for your guidance and wisdom in all that we do. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. There's a lot that we covered. There's a lot that we talked about. And if you would love to learn more about what it means to be a part of God's story and God's mission to this world, there'll be folks out the back door at the conclusion of the service who are eager to talk to you about that in your life and what that looks like here at First Baptist Bell. If you would like more information, 
please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street. We hope to see you soon.